hello, welcome to our Job to Stand podcast. If it is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've been following the gang for a while, welcome back, my friend. This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work, and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USIS, SIUS, RSI, and iGEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.dropthestand.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening to the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others tagging the pod because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stand today. Sia Gol is a passionate researcher in biology and computer science. Her first project on Alzheimer's focused on finding a treatment of the genetic effects of Alzheimer's through lauric acid. Her current research is on finding an affordable clinical treatment of pancreatic cancer through the expression of miRNAs. She is an ISEF 2019 and 2020 finalist, a National Center for Women and Information Technologies 2019 and 2021 National Honorable Men and a 2020 Silver Award winner in the North American Inspo Science Fair. She's also an invited speaker at conferences such as the Sigma Psi Annual Conference, where she won first place in the Math and Computer Science category, American Association for Cancer Research Society, Cancer London, and also is a TEDx speaker. She's also undergoing a review on her first authored paper by PLOS One and is an alumnus from the incredibly selective Summer STEM Institute Research Program. Along with this, she She's an independent researcher and officer in a program called MIR Core, where she conducts research projects using RNA sequence and leads mentorship for 65 research chapters with a total of a thousand students. She's also the establisher and executive director of Buzz and Line, an interdisciplinary educational initiative that has reached a thousand students and members. Sia is an activist and the co-leader of West Lafayette Climate Strikes and co-founder of Confront the Climate Crisis Campaign, an initiative that has gotten support from 9,000 people. Sia has also earned the Girl Scout Gold Award by founding a virtual art studio that aims to promote accessibility to art therapy for Alzheimer's and dementia patients. In addition to this, she is the president of HUSA and her school's research club, is the co-director of outreach on her world's qualifying first robotics challenge team, and is ranked as one of the top 10 congressional debaters in Indiana. In her free time, Sia loves to play her piano, dance, and be a die-hard army, the fan base for K-pop band BTS. Hi, Sia. Welcome on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. You are a passionate researcher about cancer research, finding affordable treatment options, speaking on a variety of platforms, and pouring into your community, let it be art or mentorship. So welcome. I'm excited to have you on. Hi, Blanca. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And you know how the podcast rolls, we usually date back a little bit back in time. And that's going to be the same in your case as well, because I'm so interested when and why you embarked on your STEM journey. I embarked on my STEM journey as soon as I became conscious about the world around me. 
And I feel like this was the case just because of the fact that both of my parents are really into education. When I was born, both of my parents were doing their PhDs, and I think that kind of rubbed off on me, especially because both of them had a science background. My dad was actually getting his PhD in engineering and my mom in business. So I really got the grasp of education and science when I was really young. And along with this, I was very curious as a child. I could never stay in one place, and I used to like go outside and wander around. I used to explore the world around me a lot. And my favorite activities were actually um, observing kites in the park and seeing why kites uh, acted the way they were. But I really got to explore my curiosity when I went to science museums. So I became really intrigued because of science museums, especially dinosaur fossils and uh, human anatomy. So my mom uh, saw my early enthusiasm in science, and she bought me a lot of fun science books and science encyclopedias where I could mimic experiments from. So I used to mimic these mini science fair experiments at six or seven years old. And yeah, that's when I first started to explore science. But as I got older, I dove deeper into science fairs. I think my first actual science fair project was in sixth grade, and I observed the effect of blood viscosity and blood flow rate. And the way I did this was I made a little bucket-like system, and I used different types of milk as my blood, as milk has like different types of viscosity. And I measured how fast it took for the uh, milk or blood to flow from a bucket through a tube into my bathtub. So yeah, that was my first kind of science fair experiment. And as I also got older, I got more into science science bowls and Olympiads. So I learned a lot of science from those type of extracurricular activities. But um, in eighth grade, I got in contact with a professional lab. And that's when I really started research. So yeah, my STEM journey is kind of all over the place. But that's kind of how I would like to summarize it. That is amazing. There's just like the little pixels coming together, forming this beautiful journey of yours. That has actually started at a really young age, just as you said, that you your parents actually inspired you and also spurred you on, on your own journey as well. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned that you were into reading science books and you've performed some mini experiments can you name ones like I guess you didn't make a bomb in your kitchen but uh, what kind of experiments have you conducted yeah so I think in kindergarten actually um, I like so I did a floating and sinking experiment so um, I took different objects like a penny a ball other objects and saw if they would float or sink in water and then I, I did the same thing in different types of mediums, like honey and oil. And then I saw that some objects, like most of the objects would sink in water, but some of them would float in honey and oil. And that was because of density. Oh, that's an example of how I used to conduct mini projects and explore the world around me. That is so cool. And it just also speaks to the fact that you can actually use everyday materials and produce some cool experiments. So you don't have to necessarily go into a very high tech lab just to inspire kids to go into STEM. They, they can see and touch and produce these sensory experiments with available materials around them. So I really like that. Did you actually meet uh, children or have you had friends who share the same enthusiasm for science or 
that came a little bit later on when you enrolled in Olympiads and different science fairs? Yeah, so when I was younger, like when I used to go to science museums and stuff, I didn't really like uh, find anyone who was like really enthusiastic about uh, about science like as much as I was. But that really occurred when I started interacting to with people through science fairs, science Olympiads, science bowls. Like that's when I really got in contact and started to network with people regarding STEM. Yes, I can feel that. Like I was the same that when you meet these new people in Olympiads, you find out that, oh, I don't actually feel myself alone in this world. Like I can connect on a different, a deeper level with these peers. We're definitely going to be touching on that part. But um, after moving from the milk and bucket experiment, could you expand on your first research project focusing on finding the treatment of the genetic effects of Alzheimer's? One common mutation in Alzheimer's is the downregulation of a specific gene called the APOE gene. And this usually occurs because of a specific pathway, um, specifically one that consists of the VLDLR protein and a receptor of the APOE gene. So usually Alzheimer's occurs uh, genetically when there's a downregulation or like uh, the VLDLR gene stops functioning properly. And previous research has shown us that uh, the that unsaturated fatty acids can help regulate the expression of specific genes. So I wanted to see if saturated fatty acids had a positive effect on this downregulation of uh, this whole chain I'm talking about. So to do this, I used a computational tool called Schrodinger in the first half of my project, and it used quantum mechanics to see how how these 100 saturated fatty acids would interact with this pathway. And I found that lauric acid was the one that produced the most spontaneity or like the one that was able to cause the reaction to occur at the least amount of heat or energy. So out of 100 saturated fatty acids, I chose lauric acid to be the one I used throughout my project. And uh, in the second half of my project, I turned to experimental means to see if this was true. So I basically extracted the VLDLR protein by culturing NIH3D3 cells and did plasmid preparations, transfections, and electrophoresis, basic uh, laboratory work when you're doing biology to collect the specific protein I needed, which was the VLDLR protein. And then I combined the VLDLR protein with the APOE receptor and the lauric acid to see if there would be more phosphorylation um, because of the fact that how the APOE gene is activated is from the tyrosine phosphorylation of the APOE receptor. So I compared that, the lauric acid compared to just the VLDLR and APOE gene using a fluor spectrometer. And sure enough, there was more tyrosine phosphorylation with the lauric acid than without. So what's interesting is lauric acid is found inside coconuts. And in previous research, we've seen that coconuts have a positive effect on Alzheimer's. So this might be one of the reasons why coconuts have a positive effect on Alzheimer's, because it interacts with the genetic side of the disease. Really interesting. And out of all, you've mentioned that your choice is lauric acid. Is the lauric acid used in other treatments or were there any pre-research scientific evidence that supported your choice? Or how did you boil down your choice to lauric acid? Essentially? Yeah. So when I was using the computational tool, a Schrodinger, I measured uh, 100 saturated fatty acids. So I analyzed about 
a whole list of saturated fatty acids I knew, and it was found that lauric acid was the one that produced the most spontaneity with the least amount of energy or heat. So that's why I decided to use lauric acid in my experimentation. Minimum energy, maximum efficiency. Since you've found out that um, it interacts with the genetic side of the disease, how did you continue your research? So what was the you know end goal of it and the results you've achieved that you could implement? The main results I achieved from this project was that lauric acid helped increase the tyrosine phosphorylation or overall reaction of the APOE receptor, which triggered the APOE gene to function properly. Possible treatment for Alzheimer's in the future may be just giving people lauric acid or more specifically, coconut, like a coconut taste or serum, which has a high concentration of the lauric acid. So this research just basically gives a leeway into a potential treatment of Alzheimer's, which can be lauric acid or a more coconut serum with more concentration of lauric acid. That is actually incredible because Alzheimer's affects the lives of millions of people. I know that there is an incredibly high number in the U.S., but of course in other parts of the world as well. And you could use such a simple but so effective treatment method to lessen or even slow down the progression of the disease, or does it affect it in the very early stages? Can we know that when lauric acid could be the most potential way of treating Alzheimer's? Yeah, so I definitely, it will be more effective in the earlier stages just because the genetic effects aren't as extreme in the earlier phases than in the later stages. So um, the, the treatment would be for the first thing for um, Alzheimer's is making sure that we can diagnose the patient early so that we can implement treatment. But definitely it could work in later stages. It just won't be as effective. For early treatment, I'm nuts about it, literally. And uh, congratulations on, you know, bringing forth such an incredible research project. You've stayed in the cancer research field. And how I see your whole STEM journey, a physicist friend of mine told me that you're passionate about something, you should oscillate in that area. So meaning that, you know, you stayed in the same field like cancer research, but you focused on your next projects revolved around miRNAs. And I'm interested to ask from you, why do they play a crucial role in your investigation? How I got into microRNA research was I started my project on pancreatic cancer, uh, early diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. So during ICEF 2019, I heard about the buzzword machine learning. And I got really interested in, in like the field of machine learning as the projects that were in that area were really fascinating to me. So um, I Right. The last day of ISEF, when I came back, I also went to a conference hosted by, and in that conference, the president of the University of Michigan, Dr. Mark Skizzle spoke, and he talked about the need for the early diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And the reason why he addressed this point was because pancreatic cancer is really lagging behind other cancers in terms of five-year survival rate. So pancreatic cancer's five-year survival rate has stayed at a constant 10%, whereas we've seen other cancers, such as colorectal cancer's five-year survival rate, increase from 50 to 65%, breast cancer from 75 to 90%. Why I specifically focused on microRNA research for pancreatic cancer diagnosis is because of the fact that microRNAs are more specific compared to genes. 
in a variety of cancers, we see that similarly, same amount of genes are differentially expressed in a variety of cancers. And specifically in pancreatic cancer, these genes are CRAS and TP53, but they're also irregularly expressed in lung and colorectal cancer. But when we look at microRNAs, they are more specific to one type of gene instead of uh, genes which control several amounts of genes. That's one of the main reasons why I focused on microRNA research, along with the fact that they're very novel in research just because there's so much to explore with them. Like we didn't even know microRNAs were useful pieces of information around 30 years ago. The curiosity and exploration around microRNAs and their potential is really huge. So that's one of the reasons why I decided to focus on microRNAs. These are really interesting, which you've been expanding on the current data on pancreatic cancer and why it's so vital to continue. You've also mentioned that these microRNAs are more specific than genes. And I'm interested that in the treatment options, does that mean that there might be less amount of off-target effects that we can experience with genes due to their variety of expressions? Yeah, definitely. So since microRNAs only target one gene, whereas the expression of genes may signal a cascade or multiple amount of genes, um, we see that microRNAs will allow for more specific treatment because they only affect one gene, whereas treatment of a gene may affect the functionality of several amount of genes, which instead of a positive effect, it may lead to a decreased or a negative effect. So that's a really good point you brought up. Since you've investigated in that field, what are your hopes for the field of cancer research? How do you think it's going to develop in the upcoming years? And um, how do you see that unfold? My hope for cancer research is to make sure that, or is to implement technology into uh, hospitals. I think that this is a really big step and a lot of people are afraid of technology because of two major reasons. So the first one is that doctors today, or like doctors in specialized fields, such as if you're looking at cardiology or neurology, they don't have a lot of experience with technology because of the fact that technology is constantly developing. And just 10 years ago, when they probably took their medical degree, there wasn't that much emphasis on the technology point of medicine. So I hope the education in a couple of years for doctors change so that we can start implementing technology into hospitals and making them more clinical. Because without the education of technology in medicine, this will not be possible. And secondly, the people or like patients are really concerned about technology and the privacy issues surrounding technology. So I hope that we can educate people in the future about how these tools are not as dangerous as they think they are. They aren't as invasive of privacy as they might think. So basically, making sure that everyone's achieving the right education is really important in the field of cancer research, especially diagnosis. Because we can't really get early diagnosis of cancer, specifically pancreatic cancer, if we don't implement more sophisticated technology. So I hope this happens soon. Absolutely. Because novelty without grounded information can be seen uh, a bit threatening to people, but clear communication can be extremely key in the situation, informing the patients about the upcoming uh, new technologies. While you hope it will transform the educational field, 
do you think that ML, computing, and other related subjects will be in the medical curriculum? I hopefully do think that's the case. And I also hope that more computer science people or more people with a technology background go into medicine. Like, we see that this field of biomedical engineering and bioinformatics is evolving constantly. And I hope that this continues to happen and they work alongside doctors to make sure that diagnostic tools can be implemented. That is true. Uniting to multiply that force applied. How do you wish to contribute to its evolvement in the future? One thing I hope to do is using my pancreatic cancer diagnostic tool, I hope to get more data from hospitals to to uh, establish the uh, rigor behind my algorithms and make sure that and get more testing data to make sure that my algorithms are still accurate in terms of determining if a patient has pancreatic cancer or not. And then if they are, and if I can establish the rigor behind them, I would like to establish a startup for my tool in college and work with other hospitals and companies in order to enforce these tools specifically in hospitals. So that's something I have hope for in the future in regards to my research. I love the fact that you started out in the pure research field and you've been developing a variety of projects, but you also want to pour into the entrepreneurial side of it because a lot of times what happens with science fair kids, seeing, of course, it in a positive manner because I am one as well, that the project dies or it is not continued in a real life applicable way. So it's really important to revive and continue these projects so it could multiply, um, especially in the business field, because it can it can provide that ground for that seed to be nourished and to be developed. And I guess your mother's business background can help you a lot in this regard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm waiting for your startup to be launched. I- I'm going to be looking out for you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Blanca. <laughs> Hopefully it works out. Now I think it can be connected in a mellifluous way into this topic that you've mentioned that you want your algorithm to be applied in real life situations. But I guess the current pandemic has changed a bit of things for you or actually improved. So how has the current pandemic situations changed your research flow and how you conduct your projects? Yeah, so luckily this project has been computational, so it didn't affect it too much. But it has affected it in the terms that of the fact that everything's been slower. So it's been slower to hear back from hospitals and my providers because um, they're busy with everything else that's going on with their lives. And the pandemic has put another load in their life, which is a very heavy load that everybody's trying to um, maintain and make sure and maintain and be healthy with. So, yeah, definitely the pandemic has slowed down a lot of things. Also, I wanted to perform some supplemental experimental tests to see the genetic connections or connections between the microRNAs I identified in my data set or like through interpretability methods in my algorithms. But I couldn't do that just because of the fact that labs were closed down. So it has affected it in a very small way compared to if you were looking at biology research. I feel like if I were to continue my Alzheimer's project, for example, it would have affected it a lot. But yeah, luckily, it didn't affect my research too much. That's great to hear. And that's been a wise decision, you know, looking back that you stuck with the computational side and forward into it in the long run. You are also involved in a program called MIR Core. So could you tell me more about your role in that organization or, or business? What is all about? Yeah, so MIR Core's um, goal 
is it's a nonprofit organization from the University of Michigan, and its goal is to democratize research and make it accessible to high schoolers. So I have two major roles. My first role is basically to conduct research, and my second role is to lead research and teach research to um, other uh, high schoolers. So I've conducted numerous projects using bioinformatics tools, such as R, um, RNA-seq, Unix, um, other other tools such as StringDB, Geo2R. Uh, we call that the uh, mere core research process. So using the mere core research process, I've conducted numerous projects to basically find the specific biomarkers for a variety of cancers. Yeah, so that's basically what I've done on the research side. But on the leading side, I lead the guidance committee, which is basically guidances are the chapters of MIRCORE. And they're established all around the country. We have a total of 65 uh, guidances with over 1,000 students across the United States. So I help lead them, create content and cheat sheets for the tools, one-on-one interviews, workshops, and seminars for all of these um, kids. And I also help plan weekly MIRCOR meetings where we do research and other outreach events. And we have an upcoming one with uh, Buzz Online in the future, which I know has been featured on your podcast a lot. But yeah, we have a course with uh, Buzz Online in the near future. That's amazing. Has the course been published yet or it's it's still behind the scenes going on? Yeah, so it has been published. You can visit it on our website. It actually starts on the 27th. So yeah, next week. That's definitely great to know. And, you know, you've said that you have 65 chapters, so you must have interacted with a lot of students. And during those times, what have been your takeaways talking to them and creating content that can be capturing and motivating through the listening ears? I guess that one thing I've learned from Mircor is that there, there truly are students who are dedicated to research and what they do. Through Mircor, I've been in contact with a communica- community of very dedicated students towards research. And I greatly appreciate that because they are always so curious about what they're doing and they always have the most intriguing questions. So yeah, really interacting with Miracorps or the people of Miracorps has um, expanded my uh, curiosity in terms of research. So you also receive a lot of blessing, a lot of inspirational output from interacting with the students. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of interacting with people, you've participated at numerous scientific events, including ISAF, the Sigma Psi Conference, ISAF 2019, right? Yeah, and 2020, but that was virtual. Well, it's great that you could still attend 2019. And I was actually there. It's sad that we couldn't meet. Yeah. Uh, but it's great to know that we participated in the same event. Yeah, definitely. So I said the Sigma Psi Conference and recently InfoScience Canada's virtual fair. And what did you most enjoy about these events? Any highlight-worthy moments you would like to share? I really like science fairs and all of these uh, different competitions for two major reasons. So the first reason is you get to meet and talk about to judges about your project. And usually they're really they're either professors or people who are really specialized in your field. Since my project's interdisciplinary in computer science and biology, I really like to talk to a diverse set of judges as one who is familiar with the biology or genetic side of my project may ask me more about the clinical applicability of my project and one who is familiar with machine learning may ask me more about my code and the reason why I decided to use the algorithms I did. So I really like looking at it from all these different perspectives and the judges questions 
really make me think a lot harder about my project and really help me、um, advance my project in the future. So I really like talking to judges. But the second reason I really like these science competitions is because I like I get to make new friends and interact with peers. I have made some of my best friends at science fairs, and they're located everywhere throughout the world. And it is interesting to learn about、um, other areas of research that I'm not very familiar with, specifically physics, astrophysics, and math. I really like talking to those people because my project has nothing to do with those fields. So yeah, I really like talking to my peers and making friends, and also learning about、uh, different research projects at science fairs. Both the professional and personal aspects of attending such a science fair can be so stimulating mentally and relationship-wise as well. You've mentioned that you wanted to get to know more about math and astrophysics. Do you remember a project during ISF twenty nineteen, for example, that really captured your attention and that you still remember until this day? When I hear about astrophysics and math projects, I don't understand them completely. But one one project I really remember is someone from Indiana in ISF twenty nineteen. He talked about flocks, or like he he constructed a, a project about flocks, where he looked at how different how groups of birds traveled, and he basically derived patterns from how groups of birds. Traveled, and he made a science fair project based on that, and found these patterns and how they apply to other aspects of science. So I think I thought that was really fascinating. How one specific example could expand to a lot of other examples、uh, in science and other phenomenon. So yeah, that was really interesting. Wow, this really sounds fascinating. How it's transferred into another field, and it can also expand your horizons and absorb new knowledge. Through getting to know other people's work, so that's definitely a highlight-worthy moment of ISF and science fairs as a whole. You're also involved in art, which is, I think, becoming a trending topic due to efforts such as you are involved in as well. But firstly, how do you view the fusion of science and arts? Research is not possible without science or art. So science explains the core principles of how the world works, and research is trying to advance these facts,、uh, these facts, things that we already know about. Research requires a lot of creativity and arts within it. We need a lot of out of the box thinking when you, you are doing research. So I think of research as the combination of science and arts. I really like research because of it's the what unifies the two different fields, and I think that without one or the other,、uh, research would not exist. They are like two puzzle pieces. They are different, but when you put together the two, they are compatible. It's also about a bit of an intuitive feeling to it because you are not necessarily analyzing the sensory parts of a project, but looking at the behind the scenes picture, like what are the forces that make that specific phenomena come. Come together. It's really important that you've touched on that. How it can be inevitable in an innovative project, but there are a lot of people who look down upon an arts, or you know, it can be viewed from the arts department as well, who do not necessarily want to use a lot of objective interpretations of their results. So, what do you think keeps people away from thinking of Interdisciplinary terms, and how do you help to change that specifically at Buzz Online? Yeah, so interdisciplinary. I feel like people go away from interdisciplinary just because it's unusual. You don't see this on a day-to-day -day basis because school isn't taught in an interdisciplinary way. 
uh, arts and science are kept really separate from one another, and we are taught how to do things in a straightforward fashion and memorize facts. Sure, you might be uh, solving problems, but most of the time you are building on your um, p- past knowledge you know about and solving problems that you've seen before, like in, in a practice problem set or something like that. So it is hard to develop the deep analysis and critical sk- thinking skills you do from research. So I think because of the fact that school isn't taught in an interdisciplinary fashion and arts and science and math and literature are kept separate, we aren't able to make stuff more accessible interdisciplinary in the real world. So as a result, we need to shift to more project-based learning because it helps advance your um, critical skills as well as problem-solving skills. And also, instead of keeping language, arts, and math classes separate, we need to combine them as this is a way to advance the interdisciplinary field. So Buzz Online tries to make interdisciplinary more accessible and less unusual. So how we do this is we make sure that classes combine multiple ideas and fields. Uh, Currently, we have a course on coding, science, and math. And next, um, I think, yeah, next week, the, the course I was talking about with MirCore combines coding and biology. We've also had previous courses on science and communication and um, literature and science. So you can see how we are always combining different fields to present students with interdisciplinary courses. And secondly, we always make sure our courses end in a project as we feel like this without a project, students will not be able to develop problem solving skills. So um, we always make sure that our teachers provide students with a project to work on to make sure that they're continuing to use their brain and grow on them, grow on their past knowledge and uh, help learn interdisciplinarily. Yes, absolutely. You can learn and study so much more through doing it yourself, doing the DIY in that sense compared to sitting in a classroom, which is a very typical setting, a traditional way of thinking and just copying what the teacher is writing, not really thinking about the underlying patterns that led to that result. So I really like the fact that um, not only that you're combining those two fields, but those projects, those courses really end in a real tangible result. And the fact that you also nourish a community of students. I believe a thousand of students already reached with Buzz Online, which is amazing. Yeah, so we have around 1,300 students and members currently. So yeah, we've grown quite rapidly and it's almost a year anniversary of Buzz Online. So we're really excited about that. Congratulations that you, you know, you started at such a time of crisis, really, when schools shut down and a lot of students could not learn in the way that they used to, but that just allowed them to experience new ways of thinking that you actually provide to them. So that's really cool as well. But you also transfer art into your research project as well, which I think is really fascinating. So how can art and Alzheimer's provide aid to dementia patients? Yeah, so Art and Alzheimer's is an organization I founded to help give um, Alzheimer's patients more more access to um, art therapy. And Alzheimer's, I think I've mentioned, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but it currently has no treatment. And art helps them in many ways. It helps them focus on different things and ease common symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia, such as anxiety and depression. So how art and Alzheimer's started is I'm a Girl Scout. One of the final steps you do for Girl Scouts is complete a gold award project. So 
uh, I was thinking, and during that time, I was doing my Alzheimer's research, and I realized I really wanted to interact with Alzheimer's patients. So I started to create these painting projects or manuals, which instructed patients on how to make um, a variety of uh, paintings to help with art therapy. And it started off with a couple doing a couple of workshops in one specific uh, resident home. But when the pandemic hit, I realized how much Alzheimer's and dementia patients would be affected because they have an extra load put on them from the pandemic. Like before, they only had they only had anxiety and depression because of their illness, but now they have another uh, cause of anxiety, which may result in more mental illness. So I started hosting workshops and added these painting projects online to help uh, Alzheimer's and dementia patients. And currently we've expanded to 40 homes and 400 residents. Art and Alzheimer's is something that's really close to my heart too, because I've seen one-on-one my grandma suffer from Alzheimer's. So she actually inspired me to create art and Alzheimer's, and I'm really thankful for her for it. I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm glad that she also presents an inspirational force to you to continue to pour into our lives. And um, that is amazing to hear that the pandemic did not stop you, but actually inspired you to move towards and since we're talking about art therapy and how that can relieve extra pressure on a more practical side, have you experienced that there are some techniques that prove to be more useful in terms of um, lessening stress, for example, working with multiple colors or experimenting with different textures? Or is it the flow, the experience of the workshop that provides aid to the patient? Yeah, so something that was really interesting to me when I was first developing these painting manuals is that these painting projects can't be too easy for the Alzheimer's patients. Like at first I was constructing really easy paintings because I thought that those would be best for them to actually construct and make. But actually it kind of hurts them because they feel like that they don't have the intellectual capability of doing more complex paintings. So as a result, I started making more complex or slightly more complex painting manuals as it actually helps them mentally to go more into depth in the more complicated paintings. And regarding texture, texture really doesn't, I I haven't seen that texture has anything to do with art therapy. They really just like making, making paintings that help stimulate their mind. So that's why I tried developing more complex paintings and not more um, uh, simpler paintings. Oh, that is really an interesting aspect of it that they actually crave that that complexity. You've been pouring into the lives of so many people through your uh, pourings, but now I'm interested in that. What piece of advice you've been given and would like to share with others? Yeah, so I guess like something my, one of my mentors in research tell, always tells me is uh, the con- the concept of working hard while staying humble I feel like that's really important just because of the fact that when you work hard you'll achieve things but it's but you have to make sure that you are humble and don't think of yourself too highly because that may stop you from working too hard and also that goes along with the fact that you should just keep going and never give up because once you give up all of the innovations or things you are working on will give up with you and they may be, and when you continue to work on them, they will reach your potential where you'll be able to give so much back to the world and you'll be so proud of yourself. So yeah, never give up. Um, those, those are my two pieces of advice. 
I'm loving them. And it really is true that keeping a low profile helps you achieve high goals and placing your identity in your successes can be actually quite unfulfilling because although they feel great at the moment, it's it's not necessarily everlasting. So um, just working hard, enjoying the process is so much more than receiving the award because it lasts longer. Yeah, definitely. It's always the means, not the ends that uh, you remember. Dropping the stem right here. <laughs> we are in the if questions department. So we're going to be exploring some hypothetical scenarios. And the first one, if you were a czar of legal legislation, what would you change about our society and why? Something I would change would be putting more money, energy, and organization to end the climate crisis. I actually watched a TikTok a couple days ago, which said, I want the COVID-19 crisis to end so that I can stop worrying about this crisis and worrying about the next crisis, which is climate change. So I feel like this is really our next crisis in terms of the science point of view. And it may be the next largest extinction. So yeah, I really feel like we need to put more uh, money and energy and organization into this cause. There are a lot of aspects of climate change and how you can help, but is there a specific area in terms of saving our planet that you're most passionate about, whether that might be microplastics or ecological side of it? Yeah, so something I feel like really needs to be implemented is I think that the science world is progressing a lot, but the governmental part of it or legislative part of it really needs to be focused on more. Right now in Indiana, I'm part of a climate group and we are seeing that Indiana is really reluctant in terms of climate change uh, and enforcing climate change friendly policies. So I just feel like as a whole and as a, like our government really needs to address climate change as it is and enforce harsher policies uh, to prevent it. I see. I, I think that's quite of a fitting perspective for a sort of legal legislation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the next one is, if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you invite and why? Yeah, so I would invite Steve Jobs because he's had many adventures with starting startups. And I would talk to him about the ups and downs and what he has learned. He was also very arrogant in his, when he first started Apple, but then he became like a lot better um, in terms of his nature. So I, I'm wondering what changed his mind about himself and what made him improve. And also he had pancreatic cancer. So I would talk to him about his experience with the disease and what he thinks about my tool from his standpoint. Yes, that would definitely be an impactful conversation. And since you've mentioned arrogance, I was just reminded, you know, you can still watch Steve Jobs' presentation of the iPhone on YouTube. They recorded it and it's available on the platform. But I guess that there could be a positive arrogance in the way that he described it or some people who were looking at how Apple was founded and how he introduced these new items in the market that he was not necessarily so invested in the public opinion, like what people want, but he produced a product that they will want in the future, but he set the vision for the company. And I guess that kind of arrogance can be beneficial, just directed in another way when you are a trendsetter, not a people pleaser in the marketplace, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Arrogance can be good sometimes. And the next one is the this or that game. So as the name suggests, you got to choose either or. 
Okay. All right. So the first one is, which song do you like better, DNA or Boy With Love? Boy With Love. You've mentioned in your little Drop This Time bio you, that you are a diehard ARMY member. How did that passion unfold? So um, in middle school, my whole friend group was really into K-pop and BTS. So I, because of them, I was really influenced to become involved with K-pop and BTS. Um, so yeah, I guess they really influenced me to become an ARMY. And yeah, I really like their music. Like it's really catchy. Like it's really lively. It's colorful. It's fun. Their music videos are really fun. Their dancing's really good. And yeah, it's just a whole... A good vibe. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I haven't really been invested in that, but in recent months, I've been introduced to K dramas and some Korean videos on YouTube, and I've started watching K pop bands, including BTS. And you know, looking at them, I was like, okay, I can understand the enthusiasm and the whole fuss about it because they produce some great music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next one is karaoke or a dance off? A dance off. Dance up, okay. Do you like dancing? I actually did ballet for quite a bit. I did it for 12 years before I stopped for research. Um, but I still do dance uh, in my free time, like give performances in local community events. So yeah, I really do like to dance. Oh, that is so cool. The next one is kind of a huge dispute. Chocolate or vanilla? It depends. So if, if it's plain, I like chocolate more. But if it's like with something like chocolate or vanilla cake, I usually choose the vanilla side. Very diplomatic answer right here. <laughs> yeah. Reading a printed book or an ebook? A printed book. Like I'm old fashioned that way, even though I do a lot of computer science, but I really do like feeling the book while I'm reading it. Maybe that's why, because you are surrounded by so much screen time, you know, that you have to feel the paper when it comes to that leisure activity. Yeah, that might be. Going for a hike or going for a swim? If you would ask me this question like three years ago, I would say going for a swim. But now I really like walking. I think it's because I'm getting older or something. And so I would say going for a hike. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. Turning 18 can be tough. <laughs> yeah. The last question, which just really encapsulates all the things we've been expanding on during this podcast, is the following. What does science mean to you? Science means to me a couple of different things. It means exploring the world and seeing where your curiosity takes you. It means solving problems and it means being creative. So yeah, that's how I would summarize science. Perfect. To the point and to a T. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Sia, for coming on the podcast. We've touched on many different aspects, and I know that your words will provide so much inspiration to the listeners. So thank you for sharing your STEM journey and that we could embark on that with you as you were expanding on your initial phases and how that passion continued to blossom. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Blanca. It was great to be here. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and more. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, which would ultimately help the algorithm to bring the message to even more people and inspire many. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, Thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.